Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, May 4th. I'm Carolina Sarasa, and these are today's headlines. At least 23 people killed in Mexico City after a train platform collapses, dozens injured after the catastrophe. As India battles a severe new surge of COVID-19 infections, the U.S. registering a new strain of the virus from that country. And the White House vowing to reunite families separated by the Trump administration as President Biden agrees to lift the number of refugees allowed into the U.S. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. tragedy in Mexico City. At least 23 people are dead and more than 79 injured after an elevated section of the city's metro collapsed, sending a flying down, down onto a busy boulevard. Rescuers are now trying to find survivors as families await news of their loved ones. But as Andrea Linares explains, this transportation system has been the focus of past complaints and even safety concerns. A surveillance camera capturing the horrifying moments as an elevated commuter train plunges into the busy traffic below in Mexico City, claiming at least 23 lives and injuring dozens more, including some children. The tragedy making headlines across the globe. It all happened at 10.30 p.m. local time. The train came crashing down, splitting in two leaving passengers stuck in the hanging train and one car buried underneath. Emergency crews rushing to the scene, searching for survivors in the wreckage. Meanwhile, families are desperate, looking for their loved ones. <laughs> this mother crying uncontrollably. She still doesn't know the whereabouts of her 13-year-old son, Brandon Giovanni. Here you can see emergency personnel climbing through the steel and glass to help free those inside and crews using a crane to support the dangling cars and below all the rubble, some victims still trapped inside their vehicles. Mexico's president Andres Manuel López Obrador speaking this morning. Enviamos nuestro pésame a los familiares de he sent his condolences to the families of the victims and promised an in-depth investigation. The head of government of Mexico City explaining that right now it's very difficult to speculate how this happened. The collapse occurred on the newest of the Mexico City subway lines, Line 12, which stretches far into the city's south side. It could represent a major blow for Mexican Foreign Relations Secretary Marcelo Ebrard, who was Mexico City's mayor from 2006 to 2012, when it was built. Allegations about poor design and construction on the subway line emerged soon after Ebrard left office as mayor. The line had to be partly closed in 2013 so tracks could be repaired. In September 2017, a powerful earthquake also hit Mexico, causing damages to structures. Many expressed concern over the integrity of the elevated tracks and support columns. This young man says he relies on this transportation system daily and claims the tragedy is a result of low-quality materials and Ebrard's government. Ebrard taking to Twitter, writing, 
Of course, the causes should be investigating and those responsible should be identified. Mexico City's government announcing that nearly 500 vehicles, trucks and buses will help transport passengers that typically relied on Line 12 of the metro system. Local officials in Mexico say that maintenance was carried out on the train line every day, but the system as a whole has been plagued by problems in recent years. Just last month, one of the capital's 12 subway lines shut down after a track fire. The focus now is on search and recovery efforts. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, Unios. And thank you, Andrea, for that report. And now to Washington, where President Biden formally announcing he's raising the nation's cap on refugee admissions this year. This weeks after facing backlash from his delay in changing the record low limits set by former President Trump. Pablo Gato is in Washington, D.C. with the details. Pablo. Good afternoon, Carolina. President Biden raised to 62,500 people the number of refugees that the United States will accept each year. Initially, in April, Biden said that the number would be 15,000. That is the same number set by the Trump administration. After a clear outrage coming from Democrats and refugee agencies, the president changed course and increased the number. After the change, Biden said that the 15,000 figure did not reflect America's values. Former President Trump gradually cut the refugee cap, bringing the number from 110,000 in President Obama last year in office to 15,000. During the campaign, Biden promised to hike the U.S. cap on refugees to around 125,000 a year. A White House official told the Reuters news agency that the president had chosen to raise the ceiling in order to send a very clear message that refugee processing is a critical part of America's place in the world. So far, only 2,000 refugees have been let in the U.S. by the end of March. Biden said that the goal for next year is 124,000, but he added that it will not be easy to achieve that goal. Under current allocations, the United States will be able to accept 22,000 refugees from Africa, thousands more from Latin America, the Caribbean and Europe. Biden had reportedly been reluctant to increase the cap amid the increase of immigrants arriving to the southern border. The president also ended Trump's restrictions on resettlements from Somalia, Syria and Yemen. Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras and Venezuela are the countries in Latin America with the most asylum applications. Back to you, Carolina. Well, thank you for that information from Washington, D.C., Pablo Gato. In other administration news, the EPA on Monday unveiled a new proposal to cut powerful greenhouse gases. The plan is especially aimed at reducing hydrofluorocarbons. Those are frequently used in refrigerators and air conditioners. The EPA's announcement is a big step forward for President Biden's goal of cutting climate pollutants. President Biden has promised to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by at least 50% by the year 2030. And Wyoming Congressman Liz Cheney is publicly rejecting former President Trump's most recent false charge that he would have won the 2020 election. The number three House Republican sent this tweet Monday saying the following. The 2020 election was not stolen. Anyone who claims it was is spreading the big lie, turning their back on the rule of law and poisoning our democratic system. Cheney has repeatedly pushed back on Trump's false assertions that there was widespread fraud in the 2020 election. 
He was one of the only 10, she was one of the only 10 Republicans to vote to impeach the former president after the deadly riot at the Capitol in January. And the number of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. continues to decrease, but a new variant currently impacting India has now been found here. Meanwhile, cities and states remain focused on reopening as health officials strategize on a full return to school for millions of children. Lorraine Casares has the latest. The Indian variant sweeping that country has now made its way to the U.S. The variant now being identified in three states. But a new study is showing evidence variants may not necessarily drive to increased spread, finding instead people's behavior and government restrictions have been more important in shaping the course of the pandemic here in the U.S. This as in Florida, the governor tosses out all restrictions, signing an executive order Monday invalidating local emergency orders, even though only about 6 out of 21 million Floridians are fully vaccinated. The state recording more than 33,000 cases in the last seven days. My message is the vaccines protect you, get vaccinated, and then live your life as if you're protected. You don't have to chafe under restrictions uh, infinitum. The mayor of Miami-Dade County, the hardest hit by COVID in the state, reacting on Twitter, saying, I am deeply concerned by the governor's decision today. We are still in a public health emergency and our economy has yet to fully rebound from this crisis. Fewer than half of our residents have been vaccinated and we still face a growing threat from new variants. Meanwhile, according to a federal government official, the FDA is set to authorize Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine for children 12 to 15 years of age by early next week, not this week as previously expected. At the end of March, the company set a clinical trial involving more than 2,212 to 15-year-olds showed the vaccine's efficacy to be 100% with no side effects. Welcome to news for the administration's plan to have kids back in school by the fall. I think by the end of the summer, we'll be in a very different position than we are now. As you know, I've worked very hard to make sure we have uh, over 600 million doses of uh, vaccine. We're going to continue to make sure that's available. We're going to increase that number across the board as well. Health officials ready for the challenge of vaccinating minors as quickly as possible. It's going to take a truly coordinated effort to achieve both the rollout of COVID-19 vaccine in adolescents and a rapid catch-up of routine vaccinations. If we don't immunize that group, that's going to leave a big population that's uh, susceptible to the virus and be able to continue on the pandemic. And Pfizer has announced that they are planning to apply for emergency use authorization of their vaccine on children from ages 2 to 11, and that's in September, and that's months before the expected date that was announced previously of maybe January of 2022. The studies on that age group are still ongoing, and they also include uh, babies as young as six months. Back to you, Carolina. Thank you, Lorraine, for that information. Meanwhile, experts are casting new doubts about whether the U.S. can, in fact, reach herd immunity. As Luis, Luis Mejid explains, it may simply be too late to eradicate the coronavirus in this country. The concept of herd immunity is simple. If everybody is protected, the virus doesn't have any place to go. 
But even though more than half of the U.S. population has received at least one doses, to vaccinate everybody is not that easy. Ya se vacunaron todos los que querían vacunarse. Si no Many experts agree. Most of those who wanted the vaccine already have it. The real challenge is to persuade those who don't. To reach herd immunity, we need to inoculate at least 75% of the population. Today, that seems unlikely, and health experts believe that won't change in the future. Vamos a tener que aprender a cómo vivir. They also believe that COVID-19 will become an endemic disease that will continue to create problems across the globe. Vaccination is the key to end the pandemic, but even if the pandemic ends, the virus will be with us for years to come. In San Francisco, Luis Mejid, U News. And now to Southern California, where residents are slowly starting to get back to normal as the death rate drops and businesses begin to reopen. Jaime Garcia has more from Los Angeles. Five months since being the national epicenter of the pandemic, Los Angeles County reported two consecutive days of zero deaths caused by the coronavirus and only 255 new infections from this dangerous disease. The hospital is so much better compared to what, where we were in November, December, and January. The executive president of Los Angeles County's largest public hospital says that the days of average reports of up to 16,000 cases per week are left behind, a time when many emergency rooms were forced to close due to the search of people needing beds and ventilators. We have very few patients with COVID. Um, but even those patients with COVID are not here for COVID. They don't have symptoms. They may have tested positive because in the past they may have been exposed, but they are not here for anything related to COVID. They are here for other problems um, that they need uh, medical attention. Two key factors are considered to be responsible for the radical turnaround that now has Los Angeles registering one of the lowest COVID rates in the nation. The, the progress we have made in Los Angeles really is a combination of people getting vaccinated, which is really the true solution to this pandemic, um, and the number of people who have already been exposed to, to COVID. This country of a little more of 10 million people, it is estimated that 7 million people have been already vaccinated at least once against the COVID-19. But the doctors warned that we cannot let our guard down yet. In the last week, in Los Angeles County, the average vaccination went down by 50%. This means that a lot of people are hesitant to get the vaccine. In Los Angeles, Jaime Garcia, U News. And as the outbreak worsens, not only in India, but in many parts of Latin America as well, the White House has been under pressure to waive patent rules for the vaccine so that more countries can begin producing their own generic versions. Senator Bernie Sanders is amongst a group of Democratic lawmakers pressuring the White House on the issue. But some experts say that intellectual patent rules are not the only issue preventing developing nations from having access to the vaccine. And to to understand more, we are joined by Andrew Yanku. He's an attorney and the former director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Thank you so much for your time, Andre. Nice to be with you, Carolina. Likewise, Andre, organizations like Doctors Without Borders and several lawmakers are asking for the lifting of the patent rules. Can you talk to us about the arguments in favor of this? 
Sure. The argument that Doctors Without Borders and others are making is that patents and other intellectual property restrictions, protections, uh, somehow are impeding the distribution of vaccines equitably all around the world. I, for one, and other IP experts uh, do not agree with that position. And you believe that there's no evidence showing that patents low access to vaccines. Why is that? Well, so first of all, the, 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 uh, what's important to understand is that what we all want, what I want, is to create as many vaccines as quickly as possible and to distribute them around the world as fast as possible to as many people as possible and as equitably as possible. The question is, what is the best way to do that? Intellectual property rights, what they have done is to enable a the very quick innovation that we have seen, multiple vaccines created and approved in record time, less than a year, and intellectual property rights have enabled the distribution of vaccines around the world with collaboration agreements. For example, AstraZeneca has collaborated with the Serum Institute in India for India to manufacture over a billion vaccines under license. So these voluntary collaboration agreements are enabled by, not hampered by, they're enabled by patents and intellectual property protections. And finally, what's really important, Carolina, to realize is that what we want is safe vaccines. If we lift all the controls and uh, vaccines can be, begin to be manufactured all around the world with no input, from the original manufacturer, we risk the manufacturing and the distribution of unsafe vaccines or vaccines that are not, um, that, that don't work for their intended purposes. And that would be super dangerous. And these are really complicated technologies. What patents allow you to do is to maintain control and to distribute them, to manufacture them in a, in, in, with collaboration quickly and safely. Now, the U.S. pumped $10 billion into Operation Warp Speed to develop those vaccines. A lot of that came from taxpayer money. Should the public fund these private enterprises as well then? Well, uh, so a lot of public funds go into this, taxpayer funds, and a lot of private funds go into this. Keep in mind, these really complex technologies cost billions of dollars. It's on average about $2 billion to bring one of these products to market. So it is really important to be able to incentivize this type of investment over time. Think about this, Carolina. If after all this investment is made, both with public and private funds, if after this investment is made, we tell the, uh, these companies that you're going to lose your rights, when it really matters, where is the incentive to make additional investments in the future in order to create the critically important medicines and technologies that we need to address other illnesses or other pandemics or the next crisis? And this debate over vaccine intellectual property is not new. In the 90s, during the aid crisis, American drug companies vowed to pressure to allow less expensive generic versions of medications to be manufactured in low-income countries. Do you see the COVID pandemic forcing the same outcome? Yeah, so um, it's a very good point. And, and 
companies in the past have collaborated um, and they have in some instances been pressured to do so. Keep in mind that these vaccines are different than the drugs that were made for uh, the HIV and some other, uh, other diseases. Some of the drugs, especially for HIV, it's what's called small molecule drugs. These are simple formulas that can be fairly easily replicated. What we are dealing with here for COVID, for the vaccines, these are biologics. These are biological compounds, which have well over 100, some of them well over 200 ingredients that need to be mixed in the precisely appropriate proportions and under the right conditions and all of that. It's really complicated. So it is important to be able to create these vaccines safely and under guidance from the manu original manufacturers. But here's what's really important, Carolina. We need to make sure that these companies are incentivized and enabled to create a lot more vaccines and to distribute them around the world. So we have to make sure that supply chains are in place. We have to make sure that distribution channels right. are in place and that export controls are not hampering the uh, international distribution of these vaccines. Well, thank you so much for your time. Andrew Yanku, former director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. More of you news after the short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Meanwhile, in Washington, the Biden administration says four families that were separated at the Mexico border by the previous administration will be reunited in the U.S. this week. White House officials are calling this just the beginning of a bigger effort. And joining me now to understand more is Linda Dakin Green. She's the attorney representing several families. Thank you so much for your time. Good day, Carolina. Pleasure to be here. What was your reaction to the Biden administration's announcement regarding these four families that you know? Um, frankly, it was excitement. I understand that these four families are being treated as a bit of a pilot project, but the administration plans to bring many, many more separated families back and they are approaching it in a manner that is so dramatically different than the Trump administration uh, that we should all be excited about this. And we are, and one of your clients is a father from Guatemala who was separated from his then 12-year-old daughter. That separation took place two years ago and they were finally reunited last year. How challenging, how difficult was that, was that case for you? Um, that was one of the most challenging cases in my quite lengthy career at this point. Um, we did not really perceive a pathway to bringing that father back uh, under the Trump administration. Ultimately, we got an, an order from a judge in San Diego that he would be allowed to come back. But even after that, under the Trump administration, 
um, the, the, the process of bringing him back was very challenging with obstacles every step of the way. Now, the Biden administration estimates that 5,000 children were separated under the previous administration. What has been the process like of locating these parents? The process has changed. Um, I know that for the public, um, it may seem like not much has been happening in the last 90 days um, since the Biden administration took over. Uh, during the Trump administration years, uh, there was tremendous resistance on the part of the government to participating in finding the children. Uh, so it was left um, in large part to private uh, agencies, NGOs, lawyers, people on the ground to find the families and try and make the connections. Um, the Biden administration has um, participated actively in all of this. And you'll see that with these four first families, they're actually making an effort to make the transition back to the country as emotionally comfortable, as physically safe, and as seamless as possible. And I anticipate that we're going to see much, much more of this for these traumatized families. And roughly a thousand families are still separated. Can we expect those families to be reunited in the U.S. by the end of the year? I believe that we can. I believe that the Biden administration uh, will reunite those families in the United States. Uh, and in addition, I expect that they will allow other family members who were not directly separated, but who remain separated uh, to come back as well. Well, thank you so much for everything you're doing for your time. Attorney Linda Dakin Grimm, thanks again. Thank you, Carolina. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.